And may his name be praised. Thank you so much to Marceline and Aaron leading us in worship today. Would you find in your Bibles, smartphones, Bibles that are there, the racks, whatever you need, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We have some key verses, going to begin with verses 3 and 4. But then we'll be looking at several verses in that chapter and you want to be ready. We appreciate you being here today. We're glad to see you today. Okay. Everybody's got it straight. We keep changing times and things, but it is July 4th. And so 9.15, eating, 10 o'clock, joint worship service. Great time for us to be able to come together and join together. I hear trumpets may be in the mix, all kinds of celebrations taking place. First and foremost, of course, celebrating our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and the freedom that we have in Him. So we encourage you to come be a part of that. Uh, Free breakfast? Is it open to the community? Well, yes, everything that we do is open to the community. We hope people see it on the marquee or that you invite people. It's a great time for you to be able to bring friends. Even uh, it's July 4th, you've got plans. Listen, most of you are going to take Monday also anyway, so come on and be with us that Sunday morning. Even if you're at the lake, I've done it before, it's not that far. You can come and drive. We feed you breakfast and then you have worship. You'll be back before noon, so it'll be okay. Come and uh, join us next week. It'll be great. We look forward to seeing you. It has been the summer that every, uh, every week there's something going on that we're praying for, beginning with VBS uh, at the beginning of uh, June, and then we had a group that went to Los uh, Vegas, and now we've got a group that's at camp. We've got a group leaving Saturday that are going to Washington, D.C. on a mission trip. So we, we want to do our part. We want to be praying for these that are going. They're representing. First and foremost, Lord and Savior Jesus Christ also representing this church, and we appreciate that. As they go, we go. We're all, all part of that, and we know that, uh, uh, of course. And so let's take just a moment. Let's pray for the youth who are at camp this weekend, and uh, 30, 40 of them there. And then we've got uh, several that are going to D.C. Uh, on this coming weekend. We'll be praying for them again next week. But uh, then let's pray for our service today. Let's bow together. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to come and to be a part of this worship service. We know already that you are here present with us. We pray that we might recognize your presence uh, in a very... Uh, consuming way, Father, that takes over what's happening here today, that it's not about us, that uh, it's about our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We pray that you may be at work. We pray even this very hour of this day that you'll be uh, with our youth and chaperones who are at camp this week. We pray for the impact upon our youth. And as they join perhaps hundreds of others, Father, we pray that it'll be impactful upon all those uh, who are going. May they have a wonderful, great Lord's Day, good day tomorrow. Bring them back safely. And Father, we pray that what happens there will impact not only those who have gone, but all of our teenagers as well as the families and even our permeated our whole church. Father, we pray for the group that's leaving this weekend to go to Washington, D.C. We thank you for those who are serving in North American missions. We are thankful that we can go and serve alongside. And we pray, Father, for these who are going. Certainly safe travel as they go. We also pray for the impactful times that they will have that will be and serve the ones in D.C., both those who are part of a church there and those who need to come to know Christ. We also pray be impactful upon all of those who go and continue to permeate our church as well. Pray for upcoming camps that are taking place, upcoming mission trips. And Father, may all these uh, 
certainly uh, be in your hands. And we trust that what you're going to do. Now, Father, we pray for this very hour. Thank you for our Sunday school classes that are meeting. We pray, Father, for the time already we've had in worship to be able to lift up praise and lift up these prayers. And, Father, as we read and look at your word, we know that you're going to continue to be at work. Help our focus to be where it needs to be. So we bring our needs before you, confess our sins, and ask you, uh, Father, uh, to write upon our hearts and all our lives. It's in Christ's name we lift these prayers. Amen and amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 and 4. They say these words. It said, For I delivered to you what was of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture, that He was buried and He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. May the Lord bless the reading of His holy word. Keep your Bibles open. We're going to be looking at some verses around that and following that certainly as well. We have been part of a series of messages that have taken place since Memorial Day. So this is the fifth one and it's the last, at least in this particular series, about digging deeper archaeology in the New Testament, discovering more about Jesus. We've kind of taken the... Uh, the theme from Bible school, which uh, was Destination Dig, and began to look at some of these archaeological findings having to do with the New Testament in helping us to discover more about Jesus. Now, today, I told you last week that we're going to look at what some archaeologists believe to be the most important discovery concerning the New Testament, and here it is. Are you ready for this picture? I'm ready for this picture. There it is. We've got a picture here now. Here's the other question. Do you have any idea what it is? Some of you might know. I certainly did not until I read about it. But uh, this is the ankle bone of a person who was executed on a Roman cross used for execution. Still embedded in the ankle of this person is the rusty nail that was used. In 1968, there was a construction crew with Israeli Ministry of Housing was working at an area in northeast Jerusalem when they accidentally dug up several tombs. Archaeologists who were called in discovered numerous boxes of individuals who had died, including one that contained the bones of one of an adult male who had been crucified. And this is the ankle bone, just what you wanted to see on a Sunday morning, I'm sure. But this is the ankle bone dated back to first century Palestine found in Jerusalem. Now last week, or yeah, last week we talked about and we looked at the first century home in Nazareth. Do we have that picture from last week? And last week, and we know that some believe that this really could be the childhood home of Jesus. And they have various reasons for believing that as they excavated this and found this home. A week before that, we looked at what has been dubbed the Jesus Boat boat that was found in the Sea of Galilee, also dating back to the first century. We don't know for sure whether this was a boat that was used by Jesus, but is evidence that this was a boat that could have been on the Sea of Galilee during the time of Jesus. So it could have been a boat that Jesus had actually been in. Who knows? Well, this week, and we'll go back to our picture, we have an ankle of a, an adult male who was crucified uh, when same time that around the same time that Jesus was crucified, the time that this bone is dated to. Now let me ask you this question: Could this ankle bone be the bone of Jesus? Now I want you to think Bible, because no, it could not, because we know that Jesus was raised on the third day, body, bones, and everything. He was seen for forty days, 
and ascended to heaven. So let it be clear, this is not the ankle bone of the body of Jesus. So what makes this so important? Well, before this discovery, we had several first century historians and others who talked about execution of Romans by way of the cross. And so we knew that this thing took place because of all the writings inside and outside the Bible. But this was the very first actual evidence uh, that they could, that archaeologists could actually take and to look at of an actual crucifixion. And before this, skeptics of the burial of Jesus argued that a criminal who was executed by Romans would never be given a proper burial. The Romans would not allow it. But here we have an example of someone else who was also crucified who received a proper burial. Now let us be clear. We don't need to have archaeological evidence to believe in the crucifixion and the burial and the resurrection of our Lord. We accept it by faith. But let's admit it. When we hear of archaeological findings confirming the Bible to be true, it's kind of fun to be able to say, told you. Now there, there I have used five archaeological findings concerning the New Testament. There are hundreds of those. There's probably actually thousands pertaining to the whole Bible, the Old Testament. But I'll make this prediction. As we come to the conclusion of this particular series, we could do this again probably in 5 or 10, 15 years from now and have a whole new list. Because with modern day archaeology, stuff is being discovered all the time. I was talking to my son-in-law about this series of messages. My son-in-law and my daughter went to the Holy Land about five years ago. And I told them about from a couple of weeks ago that I had used the Jesus boat uh, that had been discovered as an introduction to the message that day. And he said, oh, the Jesus boat. said, we saw that when we were at the Sea of Galilee. We saw the Jesus boat. Kind of excited. He said, when you went to the Holy Land, did you see the Jesus boat? He asked me. And I said, uh, dude, when I went to the Holy Land, it was the 1980s. They had not even discovered it yet. Biblical archaeology has its place, but a first importance is faith in Christ. Some people say that they have no need for Jesus in their life. Others say that Jesus is okay as long as you don't go too far. There's certainly no need, some say, to make Jesus the center of everything you do or first priority of your life. They would be wrong. Somewhere along the way I heard for a message to be effective, not only does it need to be clear, but it needs to be urgent. Let us be clear today that we gather together in every Lord's day because Jesus died on the cross and He's risen again and He gives us life effective and life eternal. Hope for today and hope for tomorrow is found in the message that you hear today and this message is urgently needed for you and for all people everywhere. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 that he received from the Lord that which he passed on to us, that which was of first importance. Now, I don't know if you underline things in your Bible, but if there's ever anything that I underlined in my Bible, perhaps it would be these two words in 1 Corinthians, chapter, chapter, 1 Corinthians 15 verse 3 uh, that says, First importance, Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture. He was buried, He was raised on the third day according to the Scripture. Now we all have important things in our life, things that we consider to be important, lots of stuff that we know are true, and things we believe in. Isn't it good to be able to know what is most important? According to the Scripture, it is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. This is the most important 
teaching and doctrine found of the Christian church. If somebody messes with this truth, if somebody tells you something other than, or tells you that that's, this is not as important as you think, then you need to know that they are fibbers and liars. They're speaking something other than the good news of the gospel. Steer clear. So here's what we're going to do for part of our time this morning. How can you make Christ first important? We're going to be using lots of verses. Many of them will come from 1 Corinthians 15. So you want to keep your Bibles open or some will be on the screen, but perhaps not all, as we talk about how you can make Christ first importance. If you're going to make Christ first importance in your life, you need to first put away sin. That's what confession and repentance mean. The Scripture says in Hebrews 12, we've left 1 Corinthians 15 for a moment, in Hebrews 12 it says, Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race that is marked out for us. If you want to make Christ first importance, you will need to put away sin. We serve a holy God. Your sins and my sins must be forgiven and it is the death of Christ on the cross that makes that possible. But also you need to put everything into the hands of Jesus. Put everything into the hands of Jesus. Give all your needs and every part of your life over to Christ. He wants you to give over to Him your burdens and bring your needs. And you need Jesus to be Savior and Lord of every part of your life. And you can do that today. Now, again, before we go any further, we want to be clear. Jesus came to offer us salvation. A free gift which is to live with Him eternally into heaven and to live for Him while we are here on this earth. In order to receive this free gift, you must do these things we have mentioned so far. Put away sin by asking Jesus to forgive you of all your sin as we realize we have a need for His forgiveness. And then put everything into the hands of Jesus. Our life and our eternity we place in His hands. You can ask Jesus through prayer to take control and to be Lord and Savior of your life. And if you're here today and you don't know Jesus as your Savior and Lord, or if you're listening today, maybe live stream, and you cannot say that you have a home in heaven, cannot say that the Lord is in your heart and walking with you today, well, today you can ask Christ to forgive you of your sins, and you can ask Jesus to come in. We hope that it's clear. We hope that you understand the urgency of the message. But once you have received Jesus, whether it be today or any time in the past, you want to put on Jesus today and every day. The Bible often uses the analogy of putting on Jesus like taking off worn and dirty clothes and putting on something that is new. You may be wondering what that maybe looks like. Maybe you've read that in the Bible. What does it look like in real life? It means being intentional every day and not just say I'm going to try Jesus, but truly making Jesus first priority, first importance, and letting that importance determine your steps and your decisions and your actions every day. Put on Christ. Take Jesus everywhere you go. And if you determine that there's some place that you go that you couldn't take Jesus, well, steer clear. Don't go there. But you can put on Jesus by letting Him live through you. He's better than a new pair of clothes on Easter Sunday. Well, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul's answering a question when he's writing to the church of Corinth. He's writing to those semi-new believers, mostly new believers there in that church. In the city of Corinth, there were living there in that city mostly Greeks. 
Gentile Greek people, many of them had become believers, but in the Greek culture, in the Greek way of thinking, there is no resurrection. That there, there is no resurrection to heaven or to anywhere else, they claim. That belief had permeated or migrated into the church, and Paul teaches this young church that all those who are in Christ are indeed resurrected from the dead to live forever with Jesus in heaven. And he says... If those who are in Christ are not resurrected, then Christ is not resurrected. And Paul tells the church of Corinth, and he tell, is telling the church today, Jesus really did die on the cross. Jesus really did rise from the dead. And Paul says, not only is there a resurrection, but I have living proof. He died and rose again on the third day according to the Scripture. Take a look in your Bibles or maybe on the screen today. Verses 5 through 8. So we kind of work our way through those verses. It says there that Jesus appeared to Cephas, otherwise known as Peter, then to the twelve. He appeared to 500 brothers or people at one time. He says most of them are still alive. You can ask them. Ask them about if Jesus had appeared to them. He appeared to his half-brother James who came, became a believer after the resurrection. And then to all the disciples... Then Paul says, last and perhaps least of all, he appeared to me as one untimely born. I did not deserve it because I persecuted the church. But by his grace, I became a believer and an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. I am living proof, Paul writes. All these who have believed in Christ are living proof. And we are to be living proof. Well, how can we be living proof of the resurrection? Hope that you're following along in your notes as we make our way through this. If you want to be living proof of the resurrection, give God honor and praise. Let me tell you why you need to pay close attention to this particular chapter. What we're reading here in 1 Corinthians 15 is the first recorded words about our understanding and the teachings of the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, even though it's not in the very first part of the New Testament, it is after the Gospels. This writing by Paul around 56 AD, just some little over 20 years after Jesus died and rose again, are the very first writings. This letter that Paul's writing and to become part of uh, what we know as the New Testament. So it's, it's important for us. Most of our understanding about the resurrection, most of our understanding about uh, the cross of Christ and Believers rising again comes from this chapter. And as we read, and well, we don't have time to read all of the verses and to go through everything that's in this chapter, particularly today. By the way, we have done it before. We will do it again. But it, this is considered one of the most powerful chapters in the New Testament concerning Jesus and the cross and the resurrection. So we're going to pay close attention to it today. And if we're going to be living proof of the resurrection... We must be a people who acknowledge God for who He is and give Him proper praise and credit. And Paul gives a compelling argument for the proof of the cross and the resurrection. Look at the people that we just went through in the verses that we read just a moment ago. And it talks about everybody that Jesus appeared to that Paul listed all were already believers or they became believers after Jesus appeared to them. Particularly we talk about James, the half-brother of Jesus, who was not until after the resurrection. Well, my goodness, if you weren't a believer already, wouldn't you be if Jesus rose again and appeared to you? 
And throughout the centuries, many have said and many have tried to prove that the death and the resurrection of Jesus was not true. There are still people trying to prove it today. The soldiers who guarded the tomb by the, were told by the Roman officials to say that the body of Jesus was stolen away. Matthew 28 tells us that the guards were paid a large sum of money to say while they were sleeping, somebody came and stole the body. Now think with me for just a moment. Surely this is not the first time you thought of this. If they were sleeping, how would they know that the disciples came and stole the body? Not to mention the fact that these were Roman soldiers. Had they fallen asleep on the job, they would have been executed because they would not admit to something if this had really taken place. Some have said that Jesus did not really die, but that he simply passed out. Maybe you've heard of this. This is what some call the swoon theory. He swooned on the cross and later he came to. But the Romans, who were experts in executions, that would be an insult to them. And not to mention all the problems we would have with the tomb and the stone and the grave clothes and the list goes on and on. A, a lady wrote and asked the question, wrote that her pastor had said, her pastor, I wonder what kind of church, said that Jesus was not really dead, but only swooned on the cross and was nursed back to health. What do you think, she asked. One Bible scholar wrote, Dear sister, beat your pastor with a leather whip. Thirty-nine heavy strokes. Nail his hands and feet to the cross. Place a crown of thorns embedded in his head. Hang him there for six hours. Run a spear through his side and his heart. Get himself wrapped in grave clothes and be sealed in an airless tomb for three days and then see what happens. I'm telling you, it may take more faith to believe that Jesus did not die and rise from the dead than the fact that he did. Paul debated the point by asking some what-if questions along the way. In fact, if you read through this chapter and you count all the what-ifs and then that Paul talked about, there's probably more than a dozen that are there. How many of you ever been on vacation, maybe a destination vacation with your kids? You could probably count and you'd probably have how many what-ifs might be along the way. You're heading down perhaps and you've come to the Grand Canyon, you're making a way down the trail and suddenly one of your children asks, what if somebody jumped? Well, my goodness, what a terrible time to ask that particular question if you've ever been to the side of the Grand Canyon. It's at that moment you're thinking to yourself, next summer we're going back to the beach. Kids, you can go play at the pool. It'll be a lot easier. But Paul asked, what if some are right and there is no resurrection? Verses 13 and following. And I'm not going to read all of these verses because he continues through 19 and then there are several that are along the way. But I'm going to give you a little paraphrase of it. You can certainly look in the Bible and find these as we talk about that. But he says, what if, he tells his young church, what if he's, going to, he's ready to play that question or play that game, what if? What if no one is raised from the dead? And then he says, Christ is not raised from the dead either. In fact, he says it twice in verse 13 and verse 16. If Christ then is not raised from the dead, then all of our preaching and our teaching and what we do in our Sunday school and our Bible study and our ministry and our missions and our programs are futile and our faith is empty would be a paraphrase. If our faith and preaching and teaching is empty, then all that we say is false teaching for we preach and teach that Jesus died and was raised from the dead. Well, if our faith is futile, then we are still lost in our sins. And if we're still lost in our sins, then all those who have died in Christ have perished 
and they're spending eternity in hell. If we're still lost in our sins, then we have only hope in this life and no hope in the next. And if there's no hope in this life and no hope in the next, if there's only hope in this life, none in the next, then we are to be a people most miserably pitied according to verse 19. Take away the belief in the cross and the resurrection and like a house of cards, everything else falls. All we believe is based on the fact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ after His death and the cross, the Christ that He took on for your sins and mine. Notice verse 20, if you would. It says, But in, Christ, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. With an emphasis on what is true, well, all the what-ifs, are fading. It may be most of us believe that today. You believe in the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. Our purpose is not just to convince you that it's true, unless you need convincing today, but our purpose also is to determine how you and I can live a life that is to be a living testimony. How can we be a living proof? And the first way is to acknowledge God for the credit that is due Him. We worship on the first day of the week. We come together because we've been called to come together by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We do it on the first day of the week because Jesus rose on the first day of the week. And it might have been a lot easier to be able to sit home in your pajamas and sit there with your cereal and be able to watch worship for a time in which we could not come together. But now we have been called together and we come because we want to be living proof of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. How else can we be living proof? It's even in the songs that we sing. We sing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord and worthy of worship. Now, I've got to be honest with you that we started singing holy, holy, holy. It sounded kind of soft to me. And I'm thinking, well, I'm used to a little holy, 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 a little bit louder. But by the time we got to the end, we got it right. We were building to a crescendo. I knew that there had to be a plan. And we sang that He is worthy of worship because He is. In our prayer life, we can be also a testimony living proof because Lord's allowed us and called us to His throne so that we might be able to have a relationship and communication. I'm telling you, you cannot have a growing living relationship without a prayer life unless you're spending time with the Lord Savior. Then also, in worship, sometimes we pray for God's presence, but really we're acknowledging God's presence, and every day we're to acknowledge Him and live each day to honor Him. How else can you be living proof? Give authority of your life over to Jesus. Give authority of your life over to Jesus. We learned from a young man who told us about the authority of Jesus from what he learned in Sunday school when he asked or told his mom that God was left-handed. And his mom asked him, so what do you mean God's left-handed? He said, yeah, mom, my Sunday school teacher told us that Jesus was sitting at God, on God's right hand. Well... The Father has exalted him and given him the name that is above every name. He's given all authority on heaven and earth. The one place that Jesus desires to be Lord most of all, but has chosen to give us the choice, is to be Lord over your heart and your life. You're to submit to his authority in everything. Decisions to be made according to what he would have you to do. Knowing his ways are not usually our ways, but much better. May we give Jesus all authority that belongs to Him, for God has a plan from beginning to end. In verse 20, we read it a moment ago, Jesus is called the first fruits of all those who have fallen asleep. In other words, His resurrection provided the way that all will be resurrected who follow Jesus in faith. 
Let's read verse 23 together. We find in verse 23 it says, But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then it is coming, those who belong to Christ. Well, God has a plan. What's he talking about here? He's talking about the rapture. He's talking about Jesus. He's going to be coming again. Verses 24 and 25 read like this. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. He will destroy all enemies, Satan, his demon, all sins, worldliness, all spiritual powers. And according to verse 26, what is the last enemy to be destroyed? It's death. Is that significant to you? What is it that they say the two greatest fears that people have are death and public speaking? Not to reiterate, but I've been asked more than one occasion, how long did it take me to get over my fear of public speaking? Well, when it happens, I'll sure let you know. But should Christians fear death? Well, we probably shouldn't. And I've been with many believers just before they have passed who faced death with astounding faith. And I've looked inside myself and I've wondered if when the time comes, will I show such faith? The truth is, sometimes we who put our faith in Jesus, we still, we still fear death. It's a natural feeling. But here's what we know, what we're reminded of today. Jesus conquered death for all of us. Maybe for a time, Satan thought that he defeated Jesus and that death had won. Even the disciples after the death and before the resurrection were in mourning, but on that Sunday morning, on that first Easter, it became clear as eternity hung in the balance. The message of the, of the empty cross, Jesus has conquered Satan and death now and forevermore. And if you want to read along with me, Toward the end of that chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 54, or chapter 15, verse 54, the very last sentence in verse 54 says this Death is swallowed up in victory. In the following, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We may still have anxious feelings when it comes to death. But thank goodness our faith is not in our feelings but in the fact that Jesus has defeated our last enemy. And in between these verses that we've read, not able to read all of 1 Corinthians 15, Paul talks about the kinds of bodies we'll have in heaven. And we get a glimpse of what God has in store for Christians in the future and in the next life. God has a plan from beginning to end. Still, some have a hard time believing in the life to come that truly there is a heaven and there is a place that is waiting for them. But if we truly believe in a continuing life with Jesus, then it will make a difference in the life that we live today by submitting to His plan, but also your living proof by giving your testimony and your story to others. If you want to be living proof, they need to know your story. Verse, uh, verse 29, does it seem like we're skipping around a little bit, but you're hanging good, I can tell, and plus we got some of these on the screen. Verse 29, it's been sometimes a misunderstood verse. It says, otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people being baptized on their behalf? Does that sound like a strange verse? 
Some people have used that to talk about baptism for the dead. Listen, the Bible makes it clear that you cannot be baptized for somebody who's already died. For it's through a regenerated heart whereby we are saved by grace through faith. Here is what verse 29 means. It means some Christians who had already died were such great examples and showed such hope in Christ for life to come. Others were being saved by their witness and by their testimony. And people were proclaiming about those who had believed in Christ and about their testimony saying, look at so-and-so, they died for their faith. You should give your life as well to Christ and people were coming to know Christ. Early in the past, in this passage, Paul wrote that some had fallen asleep and he uses that term sleep because sleep is a temporary state. And for those in Christ, it is a death that does not last. For to be absent from the body is to be present with Jesus. Remember, what was the final enemy according to verse 26? It's death. If the Lord tarries, we'll all face death. We'll all have loved ones who will die. Proof of the resurrection will be known by how we face death. Yes, we will still be anxious and we will mourn for those who die. But as the Bible says, not as those who have no hope. How about you? When push comes to shove is the cross and the resurrection of the living Lord... Something that you say that you believe or does it truly make a difference? For in death or in life we're to be proving Jesus to others. Not in our perfection. I along with you am only a saved sinner allowed in God's family purely because of His grace. But we are to be living proof of our resolution that we rely on Jesus who is alive forevermore. And there's another inference or conclusion we draw from verse 29. We're to be raising up new believers and making disciples for we, in, we are, as we have said before, in essence, one generation from the extinction of Christianity. Now I know that the Lord will continue the church. He'll always raise up a people to carry out the Great Commission. But Paul is asking, I think through verse 29, if the cross and the resurrection are, true, are not true, why should others be saved and baptized to take the place of those who have died? Then just let the church die if the cross and the resurrection are not true. But if the cross and the resurrection are true, it is to be a part of what we do every day, consistently looking to have opportunities and ways that we might be able to share our testimony and be a witness to others as well. Seek to get to know people. Tell them God cares for them and we want all to know God's plan of salvation. But also, if you want to be living proof, get back to living for Jesus. Now, as followers of Christ, aren't we supposed to be good? And are we supposed to believe godly lives? Yes, but we are to be reminded why. Paul gives us here more motivation for you to live for Jesus. Because there is a future. One of the reasons, because there is a future beyond this life. Verse 32 in your notes, also on the screen. If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die if the dead are not raised. Last week we were all heartbroken because of the tragedy on I-65 northbound at mile marker 138. Of the ten lives lost, eight were from the Tallapoosa County Girls Ranch. Then this week, residential building in South Florida partially collapses. I think as of this morning, 150 plus are still missing. What tragedy will be next? And some may be asking, where is God? 
Can I tell you that God has provided and is providing through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And He's providing a better future beyond this life. Because without Christ, ours is either a life of hopeless existence or let me and mine get what's ours as much as we can until we die. Let us eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. But in Christ, we have a much bigger picture. We have a greater hope and an everlasting promise. We do not live godly lives so that we might have salvation, but we live a godly life because of the cross and the empty tomb and because there is a life to come. But also we have more motivation to live for Jesus because some do not know Jesus. Verse 34 says, Do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. You see, instead of the world influencing the church, the church ought to be influencing the world. Can't get any simpler than that. Paul says, live for Him because some people do not know God. A little boy was standing at a window in an art studio and he looked in, he was looking at a picture and there's a picture of the crucifixion. Another man came and stood next to him. Stranger, he didn't know the man. They stood there for a few minutes. Finally, the little boy looked up at the man and he said, that's Jesus. Man didn't make any, didn't say anything. The little boy said, Them's Roman soldiers. Still, the man didn't say anything. He said, They killed him. Finally, the man spoke up and said, Well, where'd you learn that? He said, I learned it in Sunday school. And the man turned and walked away. And then the boy turned after him and said, Mister, Finally, he ran up to him and said, Mister, Mister, you need to know, that's not all. I need to tell you, he didn't stay dead. He came back to life again. Oh, that's what we need to do. We need to go to people time and time again and say, that's not all there is. Whatever you're looking for, whatever tragedy occurs, whatever you believe about Jesus or yourself or your own life, we need to tell them that's not all there is. Jesus is the God in the flesh and did die on the cross for your sins and came back to life and is alive today. And true believers, they don't stay dead because Jesus died and rose again. All who are in Christ are also alive today. Are we being clear? I sure hope so. Is this important? Not only is it important, it's of first importance. Everything that we say, do, believe, hinges on the cross and the resurrection. Is the message urgent? It is. God has a plan and a purpose. He's your answer for today and for the life to come. Let's pray together. Father, I do thank you for this opportunity that we've come to be in your house. Thank you, Father, for your word. And thank you for the understanding of the cross and the resurrection that leads us to live a different life and point other people to Jesus. We do pray for salvation of anyone here who does not know Christ. Father, we pray that you'll be with us these last few moments of this service together, Father. Help us to make the commitments that we need to make. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.